and he called the people to him again and said to them hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him and when he had entered the house and left the people his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them then are you also without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled thus he declared all foods clean then he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him from within out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness all these things all these evil things come from within and they defile a person hi i'm tyler don rosenquist and welcome to character in context where i teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the messiah if you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. And I have a new radio show, uh, Context for Kids, here on Hebrew Nation Online. Uh, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. Now, all scripture this week, as usual, comes from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. As I hope I mentioned last week, this is the third of the three purity controversies in Mark's gospel. The first was the healing of the leper in chapter one, whom Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, touched, which rendered Yeshua ritually unclean. And the second was the woman with the issue of blood, again rendering him unclean. Now, you might ask why I didn't include the raising of Jairus's daughter, but that wasn't a controversy. Although Yeshua became unclean the moment he entered the room with her dead body, no one was around to challenge him on it. Therefore, no controversy arose from it. But uh, this, of course, what defiles a man, is part two of the infamous unwashed hands incident, where the Pharisees notice that Yeshua's disciples are not ritually washing their hands before eating bread, as was dictated in the traditions of the elders that we talked about, you know, and we talked about what was and was not, you know, what that was and was not about, excuse me. Unfortunately, there is this tendency within Messianic Judaism and the Hebrew Roots Movement and mainstream Christianity to focus on the food aspect when this was not Yeshua's focus at all. His focus was twofold. One, his accusers were majoring in the minors, 
by nitpicking over their own traditions when some of their traditions were actually oppressing others and two especially parents you know and actually their wives and two there is uncleanness that can and cannot be washed away and they were focused on the wrong kind now the pharisees were overly concerned with cultural boundary markers those things that separated them from everyone else and even other jews I call these sorts of things artificial set-apartness, and we still see them loud and proud among all kinds of believers today. Um, you know, the things that aren't salvational and are still used by one believer or one group of believers to divide from others. And the boundaries are usually very convenient. I do this and set myself apart while ignoring this other thing that I don't do that may set you apart. <laughs> For example, if you don't pronounce the divine name this or that way. Um, you know, I will consider myself to not be really be one with you. <laughs> the way that Yeshua commanded us to be one. And we are commanded to not be divisive. In fact, we are told to throw the divisive brother out of the congregation in Titus uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Um, who is the divisive brother? Well, it's the brother who, like these Pharisees who came after Yeshua, engage in, quote, 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 Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And this is what we saw the Pharisees doing last week. They had a tradition that they were holding others accountable to. A tradition, mind you, that would later make it impossible for the gospel to be preached around the world. The man-made commands to adhere to a superhuman level of imposed ritual cleanliness would have made table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles impossible. And so deeply ingrained was this belief that these and these human-imposed boundaries that it wasn't until Acts 10, like a full decade after Yeshua's resurrection, that he finally got through to his followers, who were all Jews at the time, you know, in, in order to make them clean, you know, you must go to the unclean without scruples in order to lift someone out of the dirt. You're going to have to get your hands dirty. And the same goes for us today. You can't feed the homeless from a mile away or minister to drunks on Skid Row without being right there with them. I mean, any more than you can be a doctor without getting blood on you. Being a believer is about being in the trenches, and it's a filthy place being in the trenches. We get to leave the trenches in the world to come. But this life is about being there and being filthy at times in service to others. Now, the Pharisees and their scribes believed that they could stay separate from all that. They felt it was their job to tell everyone what to do and to get just close enough to do that. But 
They wouldn't share table fellowship with the Amharats, the people of the land, whom they suspected of not being observant enough, you know, and, and much less with Gentiles. Okay, but the hand-washing controversy was very much what I call a created controversy. It didn't have to exist because these were traditions and and that were not commanded and therefore they had no business judging other people over. You know, you can live by your traditions, but when you judge other people by your traditions, you know, that's when we get into trouble. Okay, example. About eight years ago, when I was living in Minnesota, I was part of a congregation in my community where the leader objected to me for a few reasons, none of which having anything to do with my character and were entirely over silly distance differences, although he might have actually objected to me over my character. I don't know. We didn't talk about it. He didn't approve of how I said the divine name. It even popped up in a sermon once under the auspices of being tolerant. You know, the old... It doesn't matter how you say it, but I know my way's right. Yeah, that's a, that's a direct quote. But but things came to a head when I had the audacity to wish everyone on my social media wall Chag Sukkot Sameach, happy happy um, Feast of Tabernacles, on the wrong day. <gasps> he was Dark Moon, and at the time I was First Sliver, and and now I'll tell you something. I just keep the rabbinic calculated calendar in order to stay sane and to keep out of the ridiculous infighting. So he started to argue with me and everyone on my wall over it. And when it went to private messages, it got worse. Told me I was nothing but a messianic cowboy or cowboy messianic, sorry, who ought to listen to what a Jew has to say about it, him being Jewish himself. I pointed out the Jews who in fact do support the first sliver, including the Mishnah, but I guess only the Jews who followed the dark moon reckoning counted as Jews to be listened to. Or really him. In the end, he ended up blocking me. His wife, too. Um, not because I was promoting my way as the only way in the congregation or even on my wall. And I didn't even ever mention it in the congregation. I merely said the name differently than he did and kept a different calendar. And this put me outside of his artificial boundaries. Of course, this is a good example of a created controversy over a side issue. As he cannot categorically prove either of his positions, they were unworthy divisions between brothers and sisters in Messiah. Years ago, like 16 years ago, Yahweh told me specifically not to divide from anyone on the basis of anything other than Christ and him crucified. Which is why I take such a hard line on former brothers and sisters who have gone on to deny him. But anything less than that, and we have to be really careful with whom we divide, you know, based on reasons, only on reasons of doctrine and tradition. We generally find ourselves on shifting sands when we do so, and, and how many of us have d divided over nonsense that we later found out to be entirely untrue? Ugh, you know, don't even get me started. Let's just say that I've had to, I've gotten to be very good at apologizing. <laughs> it's good for me. So, last week we covered the Pharisees' manufactured controversy. Yeshua's disciples were not ritually washing their hands before eating bread, and Luke tells us that Yeshua wasn't doing it either. As it's not a commandment, everyone should have shrugged it off, but it became the source of an accusation. 
one that had to be addressed because of what is about to happen in the accounts that follow, which we will discuss over the next three weeks. Yeshua has to set the precedent that will be remembered later. Namely, this. There is uncleanness that can and cannot be washed away. Unless one is headed to the temple, the latter is far more important than the former. Now, as we go through the Torah, we see that most sources of uncleanness do indeed come from inside a person. Menstrual blood, seminal emissions during sex, venereal discharges, the blood that comes from childbirth, leprosy, etc., etc. The overwhelming majority of these are not from sin. With venereal discharges being a huge example of that, but only of the person who got them from being naughty, not, you know, they gave it to their spouse. You know, um, you know, you had to get it from somewhere, and unless you were a faithful spouse who got it from a cheating partner, you got a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> Corpses make one unclean. Even being under the same roof with one. Carcasses of dead, unclean animals also make a person unclean. But the uncleanness of all these is temporary, with the exception of corpse impurity today, which cannot be cleansed because we have no red heifer ashes. Now, we are all, therefore, incurably unclean, with the worst form of uncleanness of all. The grandfather of impurities is what, you know, the mission of the Talmud call it. But again, the overwhelming majority of uncleanness has nothing to do with sin. In the case of sex, for example, it's the only way to be fruitful and multiply. Now, the Pharisees wouldn't eat with unwashed hands for fear that they'd come into contact with some mystery uncleanness out and about, and especially in the marketplace. But that sort of unwritten need for hypervigilance was a decision of their sect of Judaism and not a command. When they confronted Yeshua, it was for the purpose of making him and his disciples look like they were outside the boundary of acceptable Judaism. But Yeshua's going to turn the tables on them, you know, as he always did. Let's get to the text, chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, starting in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. All right, so... Yeshua, with the, with the Pharisees right there, calls the crowd to him again. The word for people here is ochlos, which is usually translated as crowd elsewhere. So these are the people who typically flock to him whenever he is in a place. He says, hear me and understand. And again, this is a statement of authority. Specifically speaking, as wisdom speaks in the Proverbs, uh... As we'll um, see in the end, okay? If, okay, we will read from Proverbs 1 at the end as a finale, but when he speaks like this, you know that revelation is about to come to the people. Let's look at um, Micah and the wisdom of Solomon really quick here. One is scripture, of course, and the other is Second Temple wisdom literature. Micah 1, 2, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Um, Wisdom of Solomon 6, 1. 
Of course, this isn't in the Bible. This is extra biblical. So then, you kings, you rulers the world over, listen to what I say and learn from it. You know, this is strikingly similar to, hear me, all of you, and understand, because these are formulaic opening statements for revelation, for something important that must be understood, accepted, and acted upon. He's about to tell them the Pharisees are majoring in the minors over personal decisions about how to live that are not authoritative. Notice this. He never rebukes them for their hand washing, only for their focus and, as we saw last week, the ways that their legalistic wrangling has sometimes led to oppression. All right. Uh, verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Yeshua is simply stating a truth of the Torah. Um, here, that it is death and bodily discharges and, 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 and death. <laughs> that make people unclean. There's a whole bunch of different kinds of so-called death because leprosy can be a form of death because it's social death, right? You can't be with the community. Um, this is um, what the Torah teaches. Now, of course, the Pharisees are saying that otherwise clean foods could be defiled by eating them with unwashed hands. Now, the problem is that the food in question wasn't holy food. And holy food is the only kind of food that can truly be defiled by unwashed hands, okay? Food is already clean. And if it is not clean, then it is not food. Food is defined, of course, by Leviticus 11 and and Genesis. And all food is, Genesis, you know, one. <laughs> and all food is clean unless it has been torn by beasts or found dead or if it is sacrificial meat and holy has somehow been kept for too long or removed too far from the temple or, or any of the other disqualifiers. This is all in Leviticus. But there is nothing in Torah saying that what is clean can be made unclean because of unwashed hands. The only exception to this, the only exception to this is that the priest's hands and feet actually had to be washed before they could serve at the altar, and if they didn't, the sacrifices would be defiled. But Yeshua wasn't teaching anything here that isn't simply in the Torah and, and known by everyone. The crowd, however, would only understand the meaning that was against the Pharisees, namely that they were wrong to hold him or anyone to this artificial standard because it wasn't keeping them or their food from becoming defiled. As we've seen, there is always a move from public to private for those who followed him and asked questions to those who kept close. You know, he's going to tell the rest of the story. Ah, verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So, this was a parable that he just gave. And they realized that there was more to the story than met the eye, probably because there's always more to his teachings than meet the eye. 
Well, we see that he entered, quote unquote, the house, and we don't know where the house is. We know that this isn't in Jerusalem, where the temple is called the house, and, and we see that specifically on Shavuot, or Pentecost, um, where 120 of them were praying when the Spirit came on them in power. He might well be back in Capernaum. And this is either his own house or the home of Peter's mother-in-law. The text just doesn't say. But now he's alone with his disciples, and like good students, they never ask him questions in public. And why is that? I will tell you. In our shame cultures, the only questions asked publicly are generally challenges or genuine requests for information from outsiders. But mostly they're challenges. If you can trip someone up, your honor status rises and theirs falls. It's um, simple zero-sum sum economics, which we've discussed before and I talk about in my curriculum book, Honor and Shame in the Bible, which is for kids, but I think most of the people who read it are adults. <laughs> There's only so much honor to go around in their, eye, in their, in their minds. So if I want more, I have to take it from you or somebody else somehow. A loving disciple, relative, or friend never questioned in public for fear that they wouldn't be able to give a good answer and would be shamed in the public eye. It's a form of protection, not asking questions in public of someone you love. Private questions never shamed anyone because you needed an audience in order to be honored or shamed. When you were with your kin or close friends, that was a safe zone. But, um... Like I said, this is a parable, which surprises people who think that a parable has to be some kind of story. A parable is a teaching with a deeper meaning than one would immediately see on the surface. But, you know, as usual, his disciples are confused. There was a deeper meaning, but they weren't getting it. Verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? I always wonder <laughs> if Yeshua was as frustrated and distressed as I heard him in my mind. Are you also without understanding? Like, look, the leadership that opposes me is blinded. But you guys, come on. <laughs> so often he said, how long will I be with you? <laughs> Almost as though he is making the remark that there will never be enough time to get his message through their thick skulls. And indeed, as we see, there wasn't ever going to be enough time because even after his death, they were clueless until he returned and spent time teaching them. <laughs> uh, but even backward, okay, as we see in, in or even after, even backward, even afterward, as we see in um, Acts 10 and Galatians, Serious course corrections were needed to bring them on track with his agenda and his will. And he says this to them. Or, you know, the text makes reference to their lack of understanding like five times in the Gospel of Mark. Um, he said it when they asked him about the, the parable of the sower. And when they failed to discern his identity when he calmed the storm and when he walked on water after feeding the 5,000... 
here and here in this account and and again he'll do they'll do it after the feeding of the four thousand the scriptural source for this statement is again in isaiah 6 verses 9 through 11. then the lord said go and tell this to the people you will listen and listen but you will not understand you will look and look but you will not learn make these people stubborn make them not able to understand what they hear and see Otherwise, they might really understand what they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. They might really understand in their minds. If they did this, they would come back to me and be forgiven. Wow. And of course, that was, that was pre-exile. Those are some pretty, pretty hard words and controversial words. And I will be back in just a few minutes. I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context, where we are talking about uh, Mark chapter 7, um, the follow-up to the All Foods Clean thing that I... Um, actually, it's not the follow-up to the... It's, it's the All Foods Clean part of the hand-washing part that was <laughs> the week before. and But this time, we, we really get into the heart of Yeshua's teaching on this about uncleannesses that can be washed away and uncleannesses that can't and where our focus absolutely needs to be. And he had, um, he just expressed frustration because they get into private and his disciples say, so, you know, what are you talking about? And he says, Oh, really? Come on guys. You just don't understand this. And, um, he says, do you still lack understanding? And, and he's wanting them to understand because, um, you know, the leadership that's rejected him and has accused him of being in league with Beelzebul, you know, they have been blinded. Okay. And that's scriptural. And, and I'm going to read Isaiah six, nine through 10 again, where we talk about this. And, um, of course this is in the beginning of Isaiah before the exile, when the nation's being warned that if things do not change, you know, they're going into exile. It's, you know, summary of Isaiah one through 39 you guys, if you do not listen to me, you're going to go into exile. And then, of course, 40 through 66 says, see, oh my gosh, guys, I told you. Now, what are we going to do now? Okay. Then the Lord said, go tell this to the people. You will listen and listen, but you will not understand. You will look and look, but you will not learn. Make these people stubborn. Make them not able to understand what they hear and see. Otherwise, they might really understand what they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. They might really understand in their minds. And if they did this, they would come back to me and be forgiven. He's kind of had enough. Um, understand this, all right? They have the passion, okay? You know, I'm, I'm talking about the disciples here. They have left everything to follow him. They have gone out on their own doing ministry in his name, including Judas, They've cast out demons, healed the sick, preached the gospels. These guys aren't wimps. They simply lack understanding. Now, Yeshua doesn't give up on them. He just keeps explaining things. Their blindness is for a season and for a reason. 
they need to be partially blinded under the great plan of the gospel you know until the great plan of the gospel is um completed because as paul said in first corinthians 2 8 none of the rulers of this world understood it if they had they would not have killed the lord of glory on a cross okay uh what verses this is verse 18 i'm going to finish up here do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him now continuing on you know yeshua begins to explain the meaning of this parable he is explaining the truth behind the commandment okay so hear me god's people are holy and not common not defiled by the very virtue of being allied to god through covenant they are made holy they of course are to act holy by keeping the commandments the commandments being the bare minimum requirements for keeping us from oppressing and abusing each other if kept honestly and with one's whole heart anyway you know even if someone eats something that is torn or unclean something that does not meet the biblical requirements for being food that person is still holy and not defiled okay they will be ritually unclean and they will have to take steps to correct that before coming into the physical presence of god's temple but they will not lose their status as being holy or set apart people of god so how does a person become defiled then to a legalist keeping it all together only on the outside the answer is horrifying verse 19 talking about um food since it enters into his it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled thus he declared all foods clean food goes in and food goes out and unwashed hands don't change the cleanliness of foods of course if one was defiled with corpse impurity or other discharges they were not allowed to eat holy food you know aka sacrifices but they would not ruin good food through touching it what is food is always clean so whatever is one of the animals defined as food or vegetables or grains of fruits and if the animal is not torn or by wild animals are found dead then it's clean because god made it to be eaten unwashed hands from the marketplace cannot change what god has made clean this by the way is more clear when the words thus he declared are removed because they aren't in the greek the verse actually reads since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled all foods clean when combined with the biblical and mishnaic evidence that excrement itself is not unclean this all makes a lot more sense clean going in clean coming out as long as you're eating food it's clean on both ends despite appearances because remember clean is not about dirtiness clean is about ritual ritual acceptability ah mishnah tractate mock shireen six seven says the following these these neither render pure or render susceptible sweat foul foul secretion which is pus or spit excrement the blood that issues with these the liquid of an eighth born uh, which is the amniotic fluid from the eighth month
and the extra additions are mine based on what it said in the rest of the Kahati commentary on that. Verse 20. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Again, this is pictured by Torah laws. Menstrual blood, semen, venereal discharges, death, etc. They come out from a person and they make one ritually unclean and therefore unable to approach close to God's temple, which is his throne room on earth. Depending on your level of uncleanness, you know, de determined how close you could get. But these defilements were of a minor sort. The most basic required a complete washing and waiting till sundown. No big deal. The worst required the ashes of a red heifer and a seven-day waiting period. But, as I said before, there are conditions that can be washed away and conditions that can't. Torah only deals with conditions that can be remedied by washings, which, as it turns out, is the impetus behind Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, where Yahweh is determined to address this inherent problem with the Sinai covenant by making a new covenant that will transform people from the inside out. I will make this agreement with the people of Israel, says the Lord. I will put my teachings in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. If any of you have a child who will follow your rules to the letter, but take advantage of every stinking loophole and drive you insane, then you know what this is about. Okay. You can follow someone's rules and resent them every inch of the way and grudgingly do the bare minimum while your heart is not in it. But Yahweh repeatedly throughout the scripture implores us to cling to him. When we do not cling to him, genuinely giving him our full allegiance and being willing to be transformed no matter what that ends up looking like, he will cleanse us of our inner defilements. Let's look at what those are. And this is an ugly list. This is verse 21 through 23 here. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. William Lane in the NICNT Gospel of Mark commentary, which is a great series, by the way, has this to say. Here, however, Jesus' expression is general and enigmatic. It did not abrogate the Mosaic laws on purification or erase this distinction between clean and unclean and declare them invalid. It rather attacked the delusion that sinful men can attain true purity before God through scrupulous observance of cultic purity, which is powerless to cleanse the defilement of the heart. Not awesome. So let's look at this list because a few apply to me. <laughs> Even after all these years of following him, you know, I can admit it. And I long for the day when he's completely cleansed me of them. And until that day, I must fight them tooth and nail because they are not okay. 
They reflect the wickedness that is still within my heart. Let's look at Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10, and 29, 13 through 16 real quick. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places in the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious for the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And here's from Jeremiah 29, starting verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with these people. And wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing say of who, him who formed it, He has no understanding. Um, we need to cling to Yahweh through um, self-sacrificial allegiance to his son, Yeshua, giving ourselves as living sacrifices and saying no to the flesh so that we will not be defiled. Otherwise, you know, we're clinging to the flesh and making excuses for it and justifying it. And never do we see that more on display than during election years on every side. No side is exempt from behaving shamefully and brazenly. It's just we like it when our side does it, right? We giggle. We wink at it. Now, evil thoughts, you know, wow, that is such a broad category. But I ought to back up before I go there. Uh, in Matthew 25, we have the Son of Man coming as judge, but we only see two categories when there are clearly three. We have the sheep who relieve and help those who are oppressed. We have the goats who did nothing to relieve and help the oppressed. Well, where are the oppressors? It's troubling to me that they aren't there, but maybe by the end of the age, they've already been dealt with. If so, then we really want to make sure we aren't oppressors, because there are worse things than being told, depart from me, you cursed. But who even are the oppressors? You know, we have some pretty extreme standards where very few people qualify, but I think there are more oppressors out there than we imagine. And I look around and I see oppressive behavior in spades during election cycles. And I'm not just talking about rioters and looters, although that's bad enough. So let's read the, the evil thoughts category again. For... From within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, 
and should say kind of like which are because these are all evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and they defile a person all right so evil thoughts this is the overarching category of this of this teaching here and this is the core problem behind all of the things that defile us evil thoughts come in many manifestations and we need to say no to all of them we need to take those thoughts captive you know and i mean seriously i'm not saying that just as a saying it's it's that's where evil starts is in our thoughts and we can get control over them because i know that there was a time where i hardly had any control over it and by working at it hard and saying no you know i've made huge leaps and strides but then sometimes you know anyway so sexual immorality the word in greek is porneia sexual immorality is oppressive by its very nature whenever we degrade anyone sexually even in our thoughts we are degrading someone made in the image of god even if that person is a cartoon character or made up in our minds we are degrading the image of god within ourselves pornography is steeped in the oppression of others just like buying sex just because we think that someone is willing to be violated doesn't mean violating them is okay we become the oppressors when we are complicit and let me tell you that there can be freedom but you have to want it and work for it and not let your guard down and not decide you're spiritual enough to to just look at it now again i mean that's just completely insane if you're truly spiritual then you don't want to look at it anymore okay it's like a spiritual it's it that's like when people are saying if i just have enough good deeds to balance out the bad deeds no it doesn't work that way that's workspace salvation right there that's earning it you can't earn it believe me <laughs> i can't earn it either um I run into a lot of people who think they can dabble, but you can't dabble in oppression and degradation without being guilty of a terrible sin against the image of God in yourself and others. Um, theft and murder. So let's go beyond the obvious because, you know, we all agree we shouldn't steal stuff from people or murder people. Uh, let's talk about people's reputations. When we hate or oppose someone to the point of being willing to lie about them even when we don't name them but describe them to the point where everybody knows who they are and it's obvious then we're stealing their dignity even if we think they are entitled to have none and reputation even if it's already bad and we have become oppressors that's on us i don't see any verses in the bible giving us permission to lie about even evil people okay if the truth isn't enough then maybe our hearts in our hearts we really aren't convinced that they are nearly as evil as we wish our opponents were okay that reveals a great deal of evil in us um adultery oh goes beyond cheating on your spouse 
porn also counts i know women who have rightly left their husbands who wouldn't give up give it up you know who chose the porn over their wives but hey romance novels aren't innocent either yeah it, they set up a standard in our households that our husbands could never live up to any more than we can live up to the pictures of the women they're looking at and not that women don't look at porn too they do women are different about porn than men but still huge problem um did you know that the best-selling books on amazon kindle are all romance quote-unquote romance novels about women being slept, swept off their feet by gorgeous bad boy billionaires so <laughs> not only can't your husband compete with mr perfect romance but he's financially insufficient as well that's how women feel about competing with women in movies and magazines we shouldn't do it back to them and call it okay and they shouldn't do it to us coveting oh goodness we have to be satisfied with what we have because if we aren't we will do evil things to get it wickedness comes from the greek word meaning deliberate malice it means that you're going after someone intentionally with the desire to destroy them in some way it means no mercy now in our modern age of internet cowardice it is possible to do this by proxy without naming them but giving yourself plausible deniability while making sure everyone knows exactly who you're talking about oh and more than that getting a fake getting a fake name and you can say whatever you want about everyone without even having to reveal who you are i mean that's the most cowardly thing of all it's deceptive but once you get a fake name and then you're hurting people it's deception piled on top of deception now, i know some people have fake names and they're perfectly wonderful people i don't have a problem with them all right it's it's when you're using your anonymity to destroy and when you have anonymity and you're trying to teach because no teacher should ever be anonymous ever all right deceit deceit involves both cunning which means you're clever this isn't an outburst of anger but planned uh involves cunning and treachery and of course treachery means betrayal either of the other person or a betrayal of your professed standards you know if you're saying oh i'm tour observant and then you just go and accuse people and you aren't even a witness and you know that kind of stand stuff um treachery is a biggie because when we say we are believers people expect or should be able to expect certain things from us like absolute integrity and mercy when we act deceitfully we betray those core values that make up the bare minimum of what people should reasonably expect from us sensuality a lot of people are guilty of this living in self-indulgence in any number of ways are you gluttons or are we gluttons <laughs> <laughs> because yeah me too okay do we live in utter luxury do we deny ourselves nothing and focus on ourselves only with respect to partaking in pleasures but also emotionally 
does anyone else matter at all envy this is the translation of ophthalmos ophthalmos or evil eye are we generous or do we take and take and take from everyone while giving back little or nothing um do we assume that god will take care of people if we don't there is a reason that this one follows sensuality because they're practically married to us to each other in a twisted sort of union the more we indulge ourselves the more we will deny others okay deprive others of the basics even slander during election years it's like this is all you see but the truth is that believers are into full-time slander nowadays with sharing urban legend and photoshop nonsense about people they hate or fear if you confront them with a blatant lie they just tell you that it may not be factual but it's true in spirit i doubt they would accept such an excuse from someone who had lied about a person they loved but this is a defiling thing doing this and not caring about it are both defiling things and not just proof of pre-existing defilement Ooh, we're getting close here pride you know pride comes in many forms but perhaps the most puzzling is when it comes from people who do the aforementioned things and feel as though they are entitled to do them because of their so-called discernment the worthiness of their cause or some other false valuation of their excellent qualities no these things defile everyone and are proof of defilement that cannot easily be washed away foolish foolishness is interesting because scripturally it means someone who does not know their place their limitations and who does not have a reasonable valuation of themselves this is why the proverbs say that a wise servant will end up ruling over a foolish son and why no one should argue with fools because they are too foolish to realize that they're even fools anyway see you next week